Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. In its 2023 Trade and Development Report, the UN Conference on Trade and Development has painted a dim global economic picture for next year. Challenges such as inflation, inequality, and sovereign debt require more pragmatic policies by governments and major reforms of the global financial system. To take a closer look at the current global economic outlook and explore solutions for major economic challenges, I'm joined by Dr. Richard Causal Wright, Director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies of ANCTAD, and Zhu Jiandong, Unigroup Chair, Professor at the PBC School of Financial of Tsinghua University. Welcome to Dialogue. So Richard, I will start with you. Uh, the UN Trade and Development, or UNCTAD, uh, has recently released its 2023 Trade and Development Report. Uh, so where it studies the global economy. Tell us, what are the highlights of the report? Yeah, um, first of all, of course, we're looking at the global economy. Growth is slowing down and diverging. So that's one of the big themes. Uh, second big theme is to look at the impact of monetary policy, where, where we've entered into a tighter monetary uh, policy regime in the Western economies. We want we look at that. Uh, looking at international trade, international trade is slowing down, and, and there's a lot more tensions in the trading system. So we take a look at some of the implications of that, and and we take a, a particular look at the struggles that developing countries are facing with their debt burden, which is a big concern for many developing countries. Mm -hmm. you know, when you uh, look at this, yeah, I mean, there's uh, more than one issue, obviously, uh, quite a number of challenges facing the global economy. What do you make of it? Yeah, so this, uh, this growth going down is really a big concern right now for globally. And uh, while the uh, uh, so the reason for this slowdown, we could say it's cyclical or uh, structural. When we say it is a cyclical, we can we, we probably will concern monetary policy, physical policy, I encourage government to uh, more active in monetary policy. When we go to uh, structural, there are more things to concern. You know, uh, now we have the original uh, conflicts and so, which makes makes me even more concerned about this uh, uh, slow down low, uh, slow down this economy. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard, the report estimates you know the global economic growth has uh, decelerated from three percent of last year to two point four percent of this year, and of course with limited signs of uh, rebound next year. Uh, the prospect is you know is dim. There's a lot of pessimism, let's say. How can we better understand these figures, you know, from 3% to 2.4% and even limited uh, chances of rebound next year? Yeah, I think it's important to look at the, the kind of big, the big economies to kind of get a sense of the world economy because they are moving in very different directions. Uh, the United States is uh, doing better than many people had expected at the start of the year. There was a lot of pessimism, but the U.S., will probably grow around 2%, and that's better than uh, was forecast. Uh, so, the, and, and with the expectation of a softer landing, inflation is certainly coming down in the United States. Uh, it's, not, it's not down to the 2% target that the Federal Reserve has set. 
Um, and so there are some concerns about what happens next. But, but the, the U.S. economy has done better. Uh, the Chinese economy, I, this is a, not an easy one for us to discuss. There's a lot of very misleading, pessimistic kind of reports in the Western press about the Chinese economy. The Chinese economy will, we think, grow probably below 5%. 5% is the target, obviously, but there are a lot of headwinds. And we would argue that at this point in the recovery, it should probably be growing over 5%. But there are problems there that we should talk about. Mm -hmm. Growing at a robust rate. The weak economy in the global situation is Europe. Europe is hardly going to grow at all this year. I mean, we say that China will grow 12 times faster than the European economy this year. So I don't think enough attention has been paid to the European economy, which is dragging down global growth quite significantly at this, po at this point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's break down these uh, uh, developments over there, Richard, uh, if I may. Uh, you mentioned about the U.S. economy, Chinese economy, European economy, obviously the largest economies around the world. Let's start with the U.S. Uh, you, know, you say the U.S. has uh, somehow managed to defy the pessimism about the economic slowdown. You know, they have a, a soft landing. Uh, if there's any lesson, uh, because the U.S. has been fighting this inflationary pressure, uh, there, and what kind of lessons are there you know, for, for example, European countries, you know, the developed economies? I think a couple of lessons are important. The U.S. economy is a very consumer-driven economy. A lot hinges on the confidence of the, of the consumer in the U.S., and the, the U.S. consumer has been more confident, I think, than many people expected. And there's a number of reasons uh, for that, I, I, I think. Um, stock market price, stock market, the U.S. stock market has been pretty buoyant despite high interest rates. And a lot of people use stock appreciation also to, to boost their consumption spending. So that, that, that buoyancy of the U.S. consumer has surprised many people, I think. And I think the other thing is that the U.S. tends to be more pragmatic. It's tightened monetary policy, as we know, but it's also used quantitative easing. It did so at the beginning of the year when there were troubles in the U.S. banking sector. And it's, it's had a relative, it's had a slight, a mildly expansionary fiscal policy. We've seen all the, turbulation, tur the turbulence in the U.S. around the budget. But overall, this year, the U.S. has been spent, the U.S. government has been spending. So you've got a more pragmatic kind of use of policy tools in the U.S. that I think is a good lesson for certainly for the Europeans that have not followed that path. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Jen Dong, you know, quantum easing, um, many people would say the U.S. Uh, does enjoy this kind of a privilege, basically, to print money and solve the problem. Uh, can other countries simply copy that kind of practice? I think it is hard for other countries to learn the U.S. policy. U.S. Uh, the dollar's position in the world actually makes U U.S. can using two policies together: monetary policy plus physical policy, printing uh, the the money on the one hand. However, a very aggressive the physical policy, uh, as Richard mentioned that. Uh, but for other country, is hard. Uh, it is when you print more money would result in uh, 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 the inflation. For example, let me take one example, Argentina, uh, or other countries. So I think the uh, it is, on the one hand, is a good thing to see U.S. Uh, soft landing. However, for other countries, it's hard to learn.
uh, because other currency doesn't have the dollar position as the U.S. has. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jian Dong, you know, uh, focusing on the U.S. economy, do you think that's uh, the end of the story? Let's say the U.S. has managed to solve this problem, the challenge of uh, inflation, and now they are managing a, probably a stable long-term growth? Uh, as I mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago, there are two uh, uh, reasons. So one is cyclical, one is structure. Uh, monetary policy and physical policy can help to solve these uh, cyclical problems, but it can, it is hard to solve these uh, structural problems. And we we see U.S. is uh, doing so-called reindustrialization, which may help a little bit, and very aggressively using industrial policy to reindustrial uh, reindustrialize. Second of all, I, I I would be more concerned about international trade. Uh, U.S. enjoyed a lot for globalizations, which uh, 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 contribute a lot for this de-inflation uh, in the past. But uh, within uh, the current situations, I'm not sure uh, this uh, this situation of the globalization, which would uh, how much would help for the U.S. So uh, I would uh, be more uh, cautious and. Uh, what to uh, wait to see what 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 would be the progress next year? Uh, Richard, uh, you know Rebecca Greenspan, uh, ANCTAD Secretary General, uh, your colleague, emphasized that the need to avoid past policy errors. Uh, so, what policy errors was she referring to? You know, what kind of fiscal, monetary, uh, and probably structural issues uh, can address the current economic downturn? I, I think. I mean, we obviously we 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 looked at the policy response to the global financial crisis, uh, where the recovery, in, particularly in advanced economies, was much weaker than expected because monetary and fiscal policy in many parts of the advanced world were not working in sync. You had very loose monetary policy after the global financial crisis, but very tight fiscal policy. I mean, you had austerity in many parts of the advanced world, and that didn't produce a sustainable recovery. It was not a combination that proved to be good for investment. You had a lot of financial speculation that followed from loose monetary policy, but that did not translate into strong and sustainable economic growth. And you didn't, at that point, really have very sophisticated supply-side policies in many of the advanced economies. They put all their eggs into the monetary policy basket. And, and that was a combination that, that didn't prove uh, very effective in terms of a long, sustained recovery. And, and so we thought uh, during COVID, as you know, there was a lot of talk about changing the policy paradigm because of the impact that the COVID shock had on many parts of the advanced economies and the constituencies within it, we thought we would see a more balanced policy response coming out of the COVID shock. And instead, we've seen, again, a very heavy reliance in many parts of the advanced economies on monetary policy, this time on tight monetary policy, because there was a fo- there's been a singular focus on inflationary pressures in the advanced economies. We don't think inflation has come from the demand side of the economy. We think most of the inflationary pressure in the advanced economies has come from supply side shocks, the breakdown of supply chains, the energy price rise, the food price shocks that came after the uh, Ukraine war, etc. And you don't solve those problems 
uh, or you you solve those problems in a very aggressive way if you only use monetary policy you tighten you tighten monetary policy you reduce spending you reduce economic growth and that's a very blunt way of solving your inflation problem which has very negative effects in terms of both distribution and economic growth so i think we're looking for a much more balanced kind of policy menu from the advanced economies that combines monetary fiscal uh, supply side measures in a in a more balanced way than we're seeing at the moment richard send then why there's a lack of moves uh, in terms of supply side uh, policy changes uh, are those changes too tough? Probably not that um, probably. I mean, for pol politicians, for governments, sometimes they have to take into consideration of politics. Uh, so probably monetary policy is easier to, I mean, to take? Uh, we, yeah, we would argue there's a, number, it's, there's a number of factors, clearly. Supply side policies always take longer to have an impact. And in a political cycle, the government may not see the returns immediately. That, that often makes them uh, more reluctant to follow those policies. I think part of the problem, though, in the advanced economies is that they are very, very driven by their financial sectors. The financial sector of the economy has an overwhelming influence on the design and implementation of policies. And that, I, in, in our, at least in our uh, uh, analysis, that has led to a distortion of the kind of policy mix that is pursued in advanced economies, which benefits asset holders and the 1% of the population, but doesn't produce the kind of inclusive growth that sees rising living standards across the board. Uh, Jian Dong, uh, I wonder how do you characterize you know, the current state of the Chinese economy? And uh, how do you describe you know, the relationship between of course, on one hand, China is trying to reduce the reliance on export, on investment, but at the same time, the Chinese government is trying to increase the consumption, you know, to, to transition to a consumption-based economy, an economic growth model. Uh, I mean, how, how challenging is that? Let, let me uh, uh, discuss more in the supply side. So taking China, China is a single country, the strongest manufacturer country in the world in climate change uh, related area. For example, these uh, solar uh, products or other the climate change products, China's capacity right now is sufficient to produce the demand for climate change related products. When we say these uh, climate change uh, demand overall, I usually put the three together. The consensus uh, motivated by from the European Union. Uh, European Union uh, has its has been uh, working very hard for a long time to get the social consensus consensus, uh, consensus in this climate change, and the technology in U.S. Uh, these uh, 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 European Union and China and the manufacturing in China. So only using consensus in uh, European Union and the technology US is not sufficient to reach the climate change targets. You need a Chinese manufacturer, a powerful uh, powerhouse manufacturer as a country. So you need to combine these three together. However, right now we don't see that. We see segmented policy 
we see the protectionism in this climate change area. So I, I would think this uh, uh, climate change, uh, it's, uh, you, it's the world consensus. Uh, we need to work on this. Uh, we needed to uh, remove this uh, trade barrier in these green products and combine social consensus uh, from the European, European and the technology from the US and the manufacturing China to combine these three force together and to reach these, uh, uh, these uh, climate, uh, uh, climate change targets, and which also would uh, help a lot in trade and development in the world and trade and development in the developing countries would also have a lot for the growth uh, for the for the overall uh, the uh, uh, for for many many developing countries as well. Jian mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, this uh, you know consensus in European countries, uh, technology in the U.S., manufacturing capacity in China. You also talked about uh, you know protectionism, uh, in particular in the factor of uh, of the efforts to fight climate change or industry related to climate change. Tell us more about that. Well, for example, uh, we just. Uh, European the uh, Union just uh, uh, started to investigate these uh, subsidies for uh, uh, electronic vehicles in China. And uh, Britain has uh, slowed down in their uh, uh, the uh, climate change targets. Uh, so we, we see, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, this social consensus, it's not easy. It has been, European uh, has been working so long to reach this social consensus. And uh, European uh, is the leader for this social consensus for the climate change over the world. And uh, European should not slow down, cannot uh, take it back for the social consensus in this climate change. And they should continue to lead this social consensus in climate change to, uh, to encourage other countries, including developing countries and the United States, to continue to doing the hard efforts in climate change. That's uh, on the one hand I would uh, emphasize. And also we see the, these, uh, uh, these uh, trade policies has uh, changed and there are more and more uh, protectionism uh, policies in, even in uh, green products. And the US is doing that. And the European Union start doing that as well. I, I would uh, uh, propose for these, these uh, climate change target in the world, we need free trade in green products over the world. Uh, while right now we are seeing uh, is taking back, is more protectionism in even uh, green products. Mm -hmm. uh, that would not uh, help these uh, this, uh, climate change targets to be realized in even developing countries. For examples, in developing countries, they need Chinese manufacture. Even European Union, they need China's manufacture. Uh, they need to import more uh, these uh, uh, new uh, energy products. For example, if they were doing so, uh, the uh, the electricity price would be uh, less expensive in European than now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Richard, uh, you were nodding your head while Jan Zhong was saying that uh, you know the EU investigation into the Chinese export of EVs, of course, the acquisition is uh, dumping and uh, subsidies there. Uh, but uh, you know, others say would say this is there's a lack of foundation of such acquisition. Uh, you know, what do you make of that? You know, what is uh, the motivation behind the EU investigation? Uh, is the EU backtracking in terms of fighting uh, climate change? I'm not sure it's back. I think it's panicking, to be honest. I think it's much more about panicking. They've, as Yongju said, they've fallen behind when it comes to the manufacturing of green products. That's that's quite clear uh, in Europe and the U.S. The U.S. has responded um, in a way more strategically by adopting industrial policies. I, in many respects, we approve of that. The problem, I think, as we see it, is that they're operating their industrial policy under a national security umbrella not a multi they're not adopting a multilateral approach to the way in which they use industrial policy and for us it's very important that you uh, use industrial policy under the rules of the multilateral system uh, uh, because if you don't, you will get the kind of beggar my neighbor policies and trade tensions that we're beginning to see now, which are no good for anybody. So I, I, I don't disapprove of the Americans using industrial policy. I think they have to use industrial policy if they're going to make the green transition. It's how they're doing it that worries us in the case of the United States. In the case of the Europeans, they've just fallen behind. I mean, you know, I think if you look at a, an economy like the German economy, which is really the manufacturing powerhouse of, of, uh, the, of the European Union, they, they, they've clearly, in terms of producing uh, green-related products, they, they haven't kept up. And they, I think the re, a lot of what they're the, the reaction to the subsidies question is a panic reaction to that failure of their own industrial policy to ensure that they make the transition to a, a greener economy in terms of their own manufacturing uh, capacities. Zhongxu is right. China has advanced in, in solar energy, in battery production, in some of the key elements of the green transition. They've fallen hugely, hugely behind, and they're reacting in the bad way. They're, they're adopting these unilateral responses when, in fact, what we need is a proper multilateral framework in which international uh, trade can be uh, developed in a more cooperative and effective fashion. Mm. Well, Richard, go ahead. You know, what's the best, uh, you know, probably multilateral approach to deal with such challenges? You know, on one hand, we do see China is forging ahead with this uh, renewable uh, products, uh, technology products, and then the U.S. is, uh, you know, uh, uh, adopting industrial policies. The EU is a bit, uh, you know, panicking here. What's the best way for them to work together, probably, in a way that benefits uh, everybody? Yeah, I, look, this is the real challenge, I think, that we all face. I, I, I think one of the points that we've tried to make, and again, we do it in the report, is that we can't look at trade, for example, as a purely standalone solution to the climate problem. We need to look at the relationship between trade and finance and technology uh, transfer issues if we're going to find a, a, a cooperative way forward. And, I mean, I, I'm now in Marrakesh, as I said, at the IMF meetings. The big issue is access to finance. I mean, for developing countries in particular, 
who want to make the green transition. They simply don't have the financial resources right now to do that. And the international community and the international financial institutions are failing to provide the resource, the financial resources so that they can combine a green transition with their long-standing challenges around poverty and infrastructure and and uh, and, and education etc so so it's finding a way i think the real challenge is to is to marry the trade agenda with a financing agenda with an access to technology agenda and and unfortunately the advanced economies are taking a very narrow uh, view of this challenge and it's producing a lot of tensions in the multilateral system when what we need is a much more cooperative and an open-minded approach from the lead the leading uh, economies at this point yeah open-minded approaches uh, uh, here at Jandong, you know of course you know if you look at the developing world there's also a debt sovereign debt issue and there's a, a demand for more reforms of the multi uh, national, let's say, uh, global financial institutions. Uh, last word? Yeah, so we know, the, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, China is a manufacturer uh, a powerhouse over the world. Financial center is in the U.S. And then, as I said, the uh, social consensus in, uh, for the climate change is in uh, Europe. So financial problems uh, need U.S. to lead to solve the problems. Uh, well, you, you could solve using uh, uh, the uh, government policy, but many financial problems needed to be solved by financial markets uh, while these financial markets lead and uh, by, by far in the U.S. Uh, let me come back to uh, this uh, uh, climate change uh, area. Uh, that is the area we need more corporations. Uh, we, as I said, uh, the uh, social consensus in U.S., financial center in uh, social consensus in, in European, financial center in U.S., manufacturing in China. But you need a three. You need all of these three. One, as the Richard just mentioned, that the uh, developing countries they don't have a capacity to do the tra the green transaction. But China does have a capacity to supply. Where does money come, come from? World financial markets led by US. So if you need, if you want to solve these issues, you need a European, US and China cooperate together to solve these problems. Uh, so even if we mention many things, let's say, uh, great power competitions, regional issues, and those uh, national securities. Can we cooperate in one area which we all agree these climate change issues? Can we cooperate in that? And then, uh, so to mass lynching, less, less concern about uh, so-called national security issues, what kind of social national security issues between China and, and Europe? There's none, nothing. On that note, we come to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Xinduo. <laughs>